Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Colleen, we are here for our second installment on The Clear Word. Yes. And last week, we talked a little bit about how The Clear Word distorts the Trinity. We're going to get into that a little bit again this week, Mm -hmm. but we're going to also talk about the atonement. Yes. And I know that you have a lot of experience working with people who've come out of Adventism. Mm -hmm. You've done a lot of research on Adventist teachings over the years related to the Trinity. And you also have experience talking to people who've come out of other cults. That's true. And they really do resonate with this ministry. So I want to know what kind of connections do you see when you talk to people between their understanding of God and their understanding of the atonement? What happened at the cross? That's a really interesting question because number one, we're going to see a connection between those two subjects here in the clear word. It's just endemic in the Adventist worldview. But how fascinating because just before you came over to record this morning, I had an unexpected phone call from a woman who said she was a former Jehovah's Witness, and she's trying to figure out what to do about a church. She's been going to a church where she's getting verse-by-verse Bible teaching, but she said, and I thought, you know, I was listening to somebody who was related to an Adventist, which I think she actually is because she's a former Jehovah's Witness. She said, but I don't agree with hell, and I don't agree with the Trinity. Mm. And so I listened to her talk for a while, and then I just asked her, There's a method to my telling you about a former Jehovah's Witness, because this is so familiar with Adventism. I said, what is the gospel? Now, Nikki, we've talked before about the fact that Adventists can almost never tell us what the gospel is. Mm -hmm. She was more clear on the details than I expected her to be. She said, well, Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose from death. But she left something out, and I said, why did he die? And she couldn't tell me. I thought that was really interesting. She couldn't tell me. And so I started talking to her about the fact that he died to take our sins. But then, you know, in this conversation, the whole thing about her not believing in the Trinity distilled down into her question, do you have to believe that Jesus is God in order to be saved? And I said, yes, actually, I think you do, because only God could take responsibility for our sins, all of them, for everybody who trusts Him. Only God has the authority to do that. And He came in a body. So, you know, I don't have to recount my whole conversation with her, Mm -hmm. but the fact is, her disbelieving in the Trinity, and she tried to explain to me that Jesus had emanated from God, which is very much what the founding Adventists believed as well, Mm -hmm. that that fact made it that He wasn't fully God, and it also confused her about the gospel and the atonement. It is not surprising that these, if you want to call them sister cults, sister religions that came out of the Millerite movement, first Seventh-day Adventism, and then Jehovah's Witnesses just a few years later, they didn't come out of Seventh-day Adventism, but Jehovah's Witnesses had as their forebears what are known as the Second Adventists. And there are names involved in those Second Adventists that are the forefathers of Jehovah's Witnesses that I learned about in Adventism as our forebears. So, we share a common root. Mm -hmm. And the Trinity 
the nature of Christ, and the atonement are inextricably linked. And people who are unclear about the nature of Jesus and who he is are going to be unclear about the atonement. And that is in common between Adventism and Jehovah's Witnesses. I just think that's so interesting. And here we have the clear word confirming all of these things that we've observed in our experience. And it's very interesting to me that the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own scriptures to support their heretical teaching. Absolutely. And while the Seventh-day Adventists won't call the clear word their denominational Bible, Uh what they do with it and what they call it are very different things. They treat it as a denominational Bible, and it teaches unique Adventist doctrines couched in biblical language, verse by verse, Old Testament to New, and the clear word supports their anti-Trinitarian teachings, although they won't call them that. That is what they are, and it supports their investigative judgment. And you know, once again, I want to say, Steve Pitcher's research on the clear word is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I'm so eager to get this book completed, to get all of his chapters edited and compiled into an online book. And he has brilliantly shown the Adventist doctrines and then shown how the text of the clear word subtly, but persistently and consistently through the entire book supports those doctrines. Mm-hmm. This is an Adventist Bible. It is. And you know what? It It's also something that tells the world what goes on in the Adventist mind. Because even before we had the clear word, Adventists were reading the Bible. Yes. And how many people, how many Christians do you know, Colleen, who have asked you after they learn about Adventism, did you guys read the Bible? Oh, yes. They ask that all the time. Did you use a real Bible? How how did you believe those and use a real Bible? It's the mental gymnastics that you do. You read these texts and and you have a whole different understanding, a whole different meaning to the words going on in your head yeah. that's shaped by Ellen White. All Jack Blanco did was put it in uh-huh. print. That's it. That's, that's what, what he did. He did. Certainly it's in his own language, but it's what we all have to do as Adventists when we read the Bible. That's so well said. Yeah. We'll say it doesn't really mean that. It means this. He just gave us evidence to show the Christian world. Look, guys, this is how we read the Bible. Yes. This entire book is that. It's the Adventist worldview on display. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I wanted to mention Last week in our podcast, we talked about the fact that Jack Blanco held the copyright of the clear word, and he did, at least through the year 2000. The issue of the clear word that I have is a 2000 issue, and I didn't even really realize that until last night when I was looking this up. I thought I had the most modern one, and I have the next to the last version. I have the 2000 version, and Jack Blanco does indeed hold the copyright to this version. But I went online and checked, and with the most modern version, which was done in 2003, somewhere between the writing of that 2003 version and today, the Review and Herald Publishing Association took over the copyright of the clear word. So I just want to make that clarification. Jack Blanco no longer holds the copyright. And I think this is important because the Review and Herald Publishing Association, as we explained last week, is the flagship publisher for Adventism. And Typical of Adventism, it is a separate corporation from the official organization of Seventh-day Adventism, but that is what Adventism does. Their Adventist health systems, for example, are separate corporations, and all Adventist property is held in 
separate corporations that are not strictly the Seventh-day Adventist organization so that if they're sued or whatever, they can say, we have no assets, which they don't, corporately speaking. They have these separate corporations that hold the assets. The Review and Herald Publishing Association is also in that category. It's a separate association, but it is Adventist. And it is the flagship publisher for Adventist materials. So, I just want to make it clear that this book, instead of becoming more and more marginalized over time, it has become embedded in the corporate structure of Adventism. And the Review and Herald Publishing Association does hold the copyright. I can't say exactly what Walter Martin would do, because I'm not Walter Martin. But he was wondering, why aren't you publishing questions on doctrine? Why did you stop publishing that? They said, we have another book we're working on. They were working on the Fundamental Beliefs book. Yes. They produced that, but they also produced this. That's and true. I believe if he had this in his hands instead of questions on doctrine, he would have oh, yes. not given them a pass on that. I agree. Because you can't read the clear word and come away with any sense of normal Christian doctrine. Especially if you understand the words that you're reading. Mm -hmm. It's clear that foundational historic Adventism is built into this book. Shall we get into it and show them how? Yes. So we're going to start with a little bit of a recap and a little bit of a further look at what the clear word does with the doctrine of what they call the Godhead. We say it that way because Adventism doesn't like to use the word Trinity. And we've talked about that before, that they have a definition of the Godhead that is a little different from the classic Christian trinity. They actually believe that the three persons of the Godhead are distinct beings who do not share substance. Now, I want to say this. There are Adventists who've been converted into Adventism from Christianity who don't understand what the Adventists really believe. If you ask some of them, they will tell you a more nearly orthodox-sounding understanding of the Trinity. But Adventism itself does not believe in shared substance among the persons of the Trinity. They believe in separate beings, not one being expressed in three persons. We see that really clearly when we read the writings of their pioneers, but it continues to this day on their website when they refer to the Trinity as three separate beings. Yes. It's not in their fundamental belief statement on the Trinity, but if you go into where they explain the fundamental belief, they do use that language. Yes. And also on their website, they refer to the Trinity as something like a team, Mm -hmm. a sports team that works together, and that's not the Trinity. Mm -hmm. So in Steve's chapter on the Godhead, he essentially leads us into a discussion of how Adventism deals with the Trinity by mentioning a book published in 2002 entitled The Trinity. And it was written by three men. And this is important. One is a professor of religion at Andrews University, at Andrews Seminary. And two were teachers of church history, also at Andrews. So these are educated theologians and historians who understand Adventism at a very deep level, and they've written a book about the Adventist view of the Trinity, and they cite sources from the founding Adventists in this book and talk about how Adventism sees the Trinity today. So right at the beginning, um, Steve mentions this, and this is footnoted from the book. 
person, as applied to God, indicates a being with personality, intellect, and will. And he goes on, there are therefore three beings in the Godhead, since there are three persons in the Godhead. The whole phenomenon of intercession implies willing, active intervention between two personal beings. Those statements are sourced from this book, The Trinity. And what's interesting is how he uses the words being and personality. Can you talk a little about that, Nikki? What is it that this book is showing from an Adventist perspective? Christians say God is one God, one being expressed in three persons. What is the point that these Adventists are making? They're making the point that there are three beings with one goal, essentially. Yes, yes, exactly. And they deny, either by omission or by explicitly stating it in various places, they deny that these three persons share substance. So, from your perspective, if I said to you that the three persons of the Trinity do not share substance, what would that even mean to you? Now, to an Adventist, it might mean, uh, well, yeah, um, I look like you, I'm a person like you, but I don't have your DNA. An Adventist would find that to be a physical statement. Mm -hmm. Well, sure, they don't share substance. They're separate beings. But from a Christian perspective, what is the significance of saying that they don't share substance? Well, then they're not God. That's right. Because Because God is divinely simple. He is one being made up of all of his attributes expressed in three persons. Yes. It, it's a hard thing to explain, and it makes me nervous talking about it publicly because I don't want to get it wrong. Right, I know. But I know that God is one being. Yes. He has one essence, and that's just orthodoxy. <laughs> that's right. And I think the thing for me that stands out the most is that Adventists will deny that Jesus has omnipresence. Mm -hmm. Omnipresence is one of those omnis, one of those God characteristics that's true only of Him. And to say that Jesus took a body so He's no longer omnipresent is to deny that He is God. They won't articulate it that way, but that's what they mean. They have to believe that God is three beings. And you know what? Sometimes they've even heard him talked about as two beings and that the Holy Spirit is just more this force that shows up at Pentecost because Jesus can't be here. Right. But they have to divide him up in order to maintain Ellen White's worldview and her pre-creation worldview and her total worldview. Mm -hmm. You have to have God the Father having a body. You have to have Jesus having a body. You have to have all of this in order to support everything she says God showed her. The physicalism of Ellen White is, in a sense, the shaping doctrine of Adventist worldview completely. The whole great controversy, the whole thing is based on a physicalist view of reality. Now, Colleen, Adventists will say, yeah, they kind of got it wrong in the beginning, but we've corrected this. And you can see we're Trinitarian now. What do you say to that? Well, what I say to that is, no, you're not. (laughs) And one of the authors of this book, Jerry Moon, has written, subsequent to this book in the year 2006, he wrote a document comparing Ellen White's, what she called the heavenly trio, with classic Christian Trinitarianism. And he shows in that document his opinion that the view of the heavenly trio, which is three distinct beings, is the right view, and that the Trinity 
which is shared substance, a spiritual reality expressed in three persons, is wrong. So even today, they do not believe in the classic Christian trinity. They morph their words, so Mm -hmm. Christians have a hard time understanding what they mean. But they do not see the trinity as being the true doctrine of what they would call the Godhead. And don't they call it a Catholic doctrine? Oh, yes. Like Roman Catholic doctrine. Yes. Now, one of the things I was especially interested in, Steve points this out about this book, The Trinity. They had a timeline, Mm -hmm. and this is the timeline. I had not known this before until I read this in Steve's manuscript. From 1846, and you'll notice that's before the official foundation of the Adventist Church in 1863, but two years after the Great Disappointment, during that period of time when those founding Adventists were developing their doctrines, from 1846 to 1888, there is an anti-Trinitarian dominance within Adventist theology. That's a long time. From 1888... To 1898, now that's a 10-year period, and 1888 was the year of the famous 1888 message after the General Conference session in Minneapolis where Jones and Wagner presented something that was a little more gospel-sounding in terms of what they needed to think of instead of just law-based. But it never did get rid of Ellen White. It never did get rid of the need for the Sabbath. But the 1888 message became like a landmark for Adventism. And there are still people today who say, oh, I'm an 1888 message person. Yeah, I've heard that. So from 1888 to 1898, that period, according to these historians who wrote this book, marked the beginnings of dissatisfaction with anti-Trinitarianism. In other words, they began to realize that anti-Trinitarianism cannot be really well supported. From 1898 to 1915, there was a paradigm shift. Now, in the timeline, the paradigm shift isn't specifically described, but it's when more Trinitarian talk became common. It was also during that time when Ellen White continued to write about the heavenly trio. I just think it's important to mention that. She began to talk about the three worthies of heaven. She still wrote anti-Trinitarian stuff. But among the leaders, there was a paradigm shift moving towards a more classic Trinitarianism. But notice this, 1915 to 1946, there was a decline in anti-Trinitarianism. Why? Isn't that fascinating? You know what Steve points out? Hmm. 1915 was the year Ellen White died. Oh, interesting. So from the year Ellen White died until 1946, there was less and less anti-Trinitarianism and more talk about the Trinity. That's so interesting because they clearly didn't feel safe having these conversations while she was around. And you think of the Adventists who were Ellen White loyalists, that must have gotten them upset. I think you're absolutely right. And I do think people were afraid of her. The last piece in this timeline that these people outlined in the book, The Trinity, was 1946 to the present. Now, the present at the time this was written was 2002. It says here that there was a Trinitarian dominance from 1946 to 2002. So the the idea of Trinitarian language, Trinitarian teaching, Trinitarian understanding became prominent instead of anti-Trinitarianism. Now, that's a really interesting thing because like we've said, they've never become fully Trinitarian in a classic sense. 
Steve pointed out another really interesting thing about this Trinitarian dominance, and I'm just going to read from a paragraph in his book. Although Trinitarian dominance began in 1946, it was a gradual change, one that was still being worked out as late as 1985. In 1985, the Adventist Church published its new hymnal, which was previously published in 1941. Now, Nikki, by the by, I grew up with that 1941 hymnal, and I remember the change in 1985. And I remember finding out that what Steve is going to tell about here, I remember discovering this in the hymnal. Here's what he (laughs) says. In the words to the hymn, holy, 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 we find a change made between the two editions of the hymnal. In the 1941 hymnal, we find this hymn on page 59, hymn number 73. At the end of the first stanza, we read these words, God over all who rules eternity. That's how the song ended when I grew up. In 1985, it was corrected to its original wording of God in three persons, blessed trinity. Now, kids who've grown up since that new hymnal in 1985 have never known those old words. Yeah, I never know them. But I remember when we first joined a Christian church in 1998, and we would sing Holy, 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 and I still found myself surprised when I would (laughs) ring God in three persons, Blessed Trinity, because I still had in my head God over all who rules eternally. It makes me wonder how many Adventist churches still have the 1941 hymnal in their pews. Probably not many. I remember when churches got the new ones and they gave the old ones away to people. Oh, You sweep things under the rugs. You never quite admit that you used to be that way. You get rid of the evidence, but you never repent of it. Yeah. So I have a 1941 in my bookcase out in the front room, but it's not going to be in the church pews. But what was really interesting was that Steve pointed out that that change in the hymnal in 1985 was kind of correlated time-wise with the problems with Desmond Ford and his publication that the investigative judgment was not in Scripture, with Walter Ray, who tried to publish a book about Ellen White's plagiarism, but when the church didn't allow him to do that, when they wouldn't make the announcement, he took it to the press and the Los Angeles Times broke the story. All of that happened between 1980 and 1985, And what's interesting, if you look at what's going on in the pews of Adventism, from that point on, there is a resurgence of anti-Trinitarianism, so that today, anti-Trinitarianism and semi-Arianism are actually still growing within Adventism. Absolutely. They've got Facebook groups. There are family members we know. Yep. (laughs) They have memes. Yeah. Steve spends a lot of time showing how the pioneers of Adventism were anti-Trinitarian with very shocking quotes. A lot of times Adventists will move away from that and say, yeah, but we don't believe that anymore. Well, one of their most prized possessions (laughs) is Amazing Facts and Uh and the ministry of Doug Batchelor. And we have this horrifying statement from Doug Batchelor that reveals that he doesn't understand the Trinity. Right. And they're all okay with that. In 2003, his ministry, Amazing Facts, published a small book called The Trinity, Mm -hmm. and there's a statement found on page 32. Steve documents it here. Doug Batchelor said, the real risk in the redemption plan besides the loss of man was the breakup of the Godhead. 
Had Jesus sinned, he would have been working at cross purposes with the Spirit and his Father. Omnipotent good would have been pitted against omnipotent evil. What would have happened to the rest of creation? Whom would the unfallen universe see as right? One sin could have sent the Godhead and the universe spinning into cosmic chaos. The proportions of this disaster are staggering. Yet the Godhead was still willing to take this fragmenting risk for the salvation of man. Number one, you notice that he's referring to the Godhead. Yes, not the Trinity. And he's referring to the Godhead in the Adventist sense that came from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. that there are separate beings. Number two, God cannot ever be broken. There's no separation of the Trinity. There was no risk that the Trinity would be broken and the universe thrown into chaos. God is holding everything together. This is heresy. And let's not forget that God cannot sin. That's right. And Jesus is God. So here we see they're playing with the nature of Christ, which is a huge problem in Adventism. There's a comment here in Steve's book also from September of 2010. It was made by Angel Manuel Rodriguez, the director of the General Conference Biblical Research Institute. And he says this, could Jesus have sinned? My unambiguous answer, yes. Let me put it as bluntly as I can. Had Jesus failed, the God we now know would not be our God. In other words, with respect to us, he would have ceased to exist. Think about what he said there. my goodness. The failure of Jesus would have meant that God was unable to overcome the forces of evil and that Satan was powerful enough to overcome him by derailing his plan of salvation, thus forcing God to abandon us. You know what this makes me think of? What? There was this one afternoon I was so tired and I was wiping down my kitchen table and my young toddler son was sitting there eating his snack and I... I was weary and I just said out loud, oh, what would I do without God if God didn't exist? And Joshua laughed. Little kid laughed. He said, mom, if God didn't exist, you wouldn't even be here. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) you can't exist without God. It was no brainer, duh, out of this child. And here we have men who claim to be in positions of authority over millions of people giving the truth of the remnant people. And they're saying with respect to us, God would have ceased to exist. It's unbelievable, Nikki. We never hung by a thread like this. Jesus never, ever had a chance of failing in his mission. He was God, even while he was man. And he was man with a living spirit, never dead in sin, not just born with propensities to evil in his genes like we were taught as Adventists. He was born alive. He had no attraction to sin. Yes, he was tempted. He was tempted beyond anything we can imagine. But he did not sin, and he could not sin, because in some way we cannot explain Even as an incarnate God the Son in a man's body, he could not sin. He was God, and that's why he came to be our sacrifice and substitute. This is horrifying to me, and if we have any doubt that Adventism doesn't understand the atonement and doesn't understand the nature of Jesus, not to mention the nature of man, these quotes are enough to prove it. These are official quotes. There's so much excellent information in this chapter that Steve wrote, and I love how he sets up 
all of the context, all of the background, all of the Adventist pillars that demand Jack Blanco's twisting of scripture. And then he gives us all of these great passages showing us how he does this. This is not just a lovely devotional expanded paraphrase. This is the work of a counterfeit. That's right. Now let's show some examples of that. Last week, we did talk about how Jack Blanco confused the reality of Genesis 1 and the creation story, and of John 1 with the identity of Jesus as God. So we're going to jump ahead and show what Jack Blanco did with John 8, 58. And Nikki, there's a particularly interesting thing in what Steve has done in this manuscript. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, he actually compared what Jack Blanco does here with the text with what the Jehovah's Witnesses did with the text. That's right. Both of these groups needed to alter what Christ said here because they have a different Christ. Do you want to read it? Sure. So John eight fifty eight in the English Standard Version reads, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The clear word says, Jesus answered, because I existed before Abraham was born. <laughs> That's not the same. No, it's I not. I am is the name of God. That is Yahweh. <laughs> the New World Translation, Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, reads, Jesus said to them, Most truly I say to you, before Abraham came into existence, I have been. Completely changes the meaning. And there's a reason for that. There's absolutely no reason to alter this text unless you need to alter the nature of Christ because right. he is making a statement about who he is here. He's saying he is God. He's saying he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Both Adventism, Jack Blanco, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have to change that. Another one we can look at is John 10, 37 to 38. And we have here a comparison between the easy English clear word, which is the same as the clear word for kids, the clear word, and the English Standard Version. Nikki, you want to start us off by reading the English Standard Version and then reading those other two. They're both being sold today. Okay. So, John ten thirty seven through 38, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Well, there's a unity that we can't explain, but it is very clear. The works that Jesus is doing are the works that God is doing and that Jesus is doing because he says, believe the works because you can know and understand. Isn't that an interesting difference? Mm -hmm. Know and understand that, and here's the mystery. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Now, that's indivisible. There's something indivisible there, and that's not physical. So, the clear word, the easy English clear word reads, if I'm not doing the Father's work, then you don't have to believe in me. But at least admit that what I do comes from God. If you did that much, you would soon see that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father, which makes us one. Then the clear word reads, If you don't think I'm doing the Father's works, then you don't have to believe what I say. But if I'm doing the Father's works, even though you don't want to believe in me, at least admit that the works I do are from God. If you admitted that much, you would soon see that He's working in me and that I am in Him. We work together as one. 
So Blanco is saying we're working together as one. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying they are one. The Father's in me. I am in the Father. And to give Blanco a little bit more context here, in John chapter 14, when he talks about the unity between him and the Father, he says, you see, my Father and I are so close, we're one. So it's really a relationship, a close friendship, a close relationship that he's referring to, that he's taking the text yes. where Christ is saying he is God. Yes. And he's saying, oh, he's just really close to him. He is separating the Father and the Son into two beings. And that's not what the Bible is teaching. And Jesus made it really clear that he was God. Inseparable. He's never able to be separated from the Father, even though he's not the same person. So then Steve takes us to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, where Philip asks Jesus to show them the Father. So the ESV reads, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So here's what Jack Blanco does. Philip spoke up. Lord, give us just one glimpse of the Father before you go, and we'll be satisfied. Jesus, being somewhat disappointed with <laughs> Philip's lack of faith, said, You mean I've been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? When you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father. How then can you ask me to give you a glimpse of the Father? You must believe me when I tell you that I am the Father in action oh and that the Father is living out his life in me. All the things I've taught you were not just my own, but the Father's. It's the Father living in me who's doing all this. Believe me when I tell you that the Father would do everything I have oh, done if he were here. My goodness. If it's hard for you to believe that, then don't base your faith on what I'm saying, but on the miracles that you have seen me do. That's so horrible. That's modalism. Yeah, it, it sure looks like modalism to me. And how can he say on the one hand, if you're looking at me, you see the Father, and if the Father were here, he'd do what I'm exactly. doing. It, it doesn't... Exactly. Yeah. And you must believe me when I tell you that I am the Father in action, and the Father is living out his life in me. Well, who's doing it? Jesus or the Father? I mean, there's only really one explanation for this. Jack Blanco's getting this all muddled up and kind of doing a modalistic description of Jesus. Oh, we saw him as Jesus, but Jesus is telling us, well, this is really the Father, but this is more confusion than I can say. Now, can we explain the Trinity? Can we explain the reality of who Jesus is and how he's one with the Father? No, we can't fully explain that. But the fact is, if we take the words of the real Bible, it makes more sense, it holds together, it's unified, and we get a bigger picture of God than if we try to figure out this crazy interpretation of Jack Blanco, which upholds Ellen White's worldview. One of the passages that Jack Blanco messes with is one of my favorites in the book of Colossians. It's verse 19 of chapter 1. Now, this is one of the clearest statements in all the Bible that when Jesus became a man, he did not give up 
any of his deity or his God power. Colossians 1.19 in the ESV says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, all the fullness of God means all the attributes of God, all the essence of God, all that makes God God was pleased to dwell in Jesus as a man, as an incarnate man. So he didn't give up anything. He gave up position. He gave up glory, but he didn't give up his identity as fully God. Can I explain this? No. I love what Pastor Gary says. He says that it was God who took a body. He added to himself. He didn't remove his deity. He was God who took a body to himself. I love that. I had forgotten he said that. That's actually really helpful. We move into the clear word, and we see three versions of the clear word, and we see how Blanco has morphed and how he has never come down at an orthodox place. The first clear word example we have is from his very first New Testament paraphrase, which was published that year after Walter Martin died in the year 2000. And this is what he says with that verse. And it pleased the Father to acknowledge him as fully God in spite of his human nature. So we have a completely different subject and verb here. It's saying it pleased the Father to acknowledge him as fully God in spite of his human nature when the actual text said, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Then we move to the clear word in the first four editions of 2000. And this is what he said. With pleasure, the Father acknowledged him as fully God in spite of his human nature. Now, you know, the Bible never says anything about his human nature being a problem or in spite of, and it never says that the Father acknowledges him. What the Bible says, and I think this is really interesting, is that the fullness of God, the full identity of God, which includes the whole Trinity, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the incarnate Christ. So this is saying that all of God was pleased to dwell inside this man who was the incarnate Jesus. The third one we have is from the 2004 clear word. The father, here again, was pleased to acknowledge the fullness of God in him. Well, again, we have the separation of the father and the son. We have God going, there, there, dear son, I'm so thankful to see that all of God is pleased to be in you. That's not what the Bible passage says. What Jack Blanco needs here is to leave room, to leave space for the idea that Jesus had a sinful fallen nature. Yes. Because that's what their prophetess taught. That's what the pioneers taught. And that's what so many continue to argue. It's even in the Fundamental Beliefs book. When we went through the series, we saw that it said it would not have been fair. It wouldn't have been honest if he came with an advantage we don't have. I was taught that. So Jack is leaving space in his clear word Bible for Adventist heresy. And if you don't know what it's there to support, you might not see what he's doing, but it's very intentional. Yeah, I agree. It is a seamless whole from Genesis to Revelation. Well, Nikki, now that we've talked a little bit about how Jack Blanco supports the Adventist view that Jesus isn't fully God, that Jesus perhaps had a beginning, and that the Trinity is a Godhead, 
three separate beings and mm-hmm. not one being expressed in three persons, this has huge implications for the core of Adventism, which is its doctrine of the atonement. Now, they hide this. They try to hide this among themselves. But I really appreciated how Steve explained that they're dealing with the great disappointment and trying to explain what really happened from their perspective when Jesus didn't come back, led to what we now know as two fundamental beliefs of Adventism out of the 28. So, these are the two, he says, that that great disappointment fiasco led to. The first is... Fundamental belief number 13, which is the remnant and its mission. Adventists self-identify as the remnant church of Bible prophecy with a specific job, and that is to proclaim the three angels' messages to the world that humanity is supposed to keep the seventh-day Sabbath and understand that the investigative judgment began in 1844. That's their unique mission. So, the teaching that in 1844, Jesus went from the holy place into the most holy place triggered the rather self-important belief that these people who understood this special revelation are the remnant. It also triggered their core doctrine of Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And that is really very watered-down, whitewashed language to cover up the fact that they are believing that Jesus is up in heaven going through the records of sins of professed believers, of believers, and deciding if they're really forgiven or not. Mm -hmm. And in the end, those that are forgiven, their sins will go on Satan the scapegoat. That is the core essence of the investigative judgment. So, that doctrine has to be upheld in the Bible for Adventists to be able to teach it cohesively. The clear word just happens to be a wonderful serendipity for them because they can read it now and go, oh, now I understand it. Our beliefs are right here in the Bible. So, Nikki, there is an amazing quote in Steve's article from Uriah Smith, who was one of the founding Adventists. He was the first General Conference secretary. He was actually the General Conference president for a year in the 1840s. Would you read the quote that struck both of us so much? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I I love the Adventist pioneers because they're more honest about what they believed than present-day Adventists are. He's writing about the sanctuary, and he says, The death of Christ and the atonement are not the same thing. And this relieves the matter of all difficulty. Christ did not make the atonement when he shed his blood upon the cross. Let this fact be fixed forever in the mind. Steve also shares a quote by Ellen White here, adding her voice to all the comments about the atonement and the blood of Christ. He shares a quote from Ellen G. White, taken from The Great Controversy in 1911 on page 421. And she says, As in the typical service, there was a work of atonement at the close of the year. So before Christ's work for the redemption of men is completed, there is a work of atonement for the removal of sin from the sanctuary. This is the service which began when the 2300 days ended, 1844. At that time, as foretold by Daniel the prophet, our high priest entered the Most Holy to perform the last division of his solemn work to cleanse the sanctuary. So this is a very physical sanctuary in heaven. And when we talked about this at the conference this year, I loved what one of the women said. She said, what do they do about the fact that the veil was torn? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) This is just all very, very physical. And 
Jack Blinko makes sure that when he writes his paraphrase, he guards and protects these doctrines. That's right. Not to mention, he guards and protects the fact that atonement is being made in heaven. Atonement was not completed at the cross. That is essential Adventist doctrine. They try not to talk about it in public because they know it sounds like a heresy, which it is. But Jack Blanco protects all of this. So, Nikki, Hebrews 8.5, would you share how Jack Blanco alters Hebrews 8.5? Sure. So, I'll read it first from the English Standard Version. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So here's how Jack Blinko translates that. But what they do only points to what is taking place in heaven. This is what God had in mind when he said to Moses, build a sanctuary exactly like the plan you saw on the mountain. That was from the clear word for kids. So then the clear word says, but the work they do here is only an imperfect copy and shadow of what is being done for us in heaven. Hmm. This is what God had in mind for the service of the earthly sanctuary when he said to Moses, build according to the plan which I showed you on the mountain. Now I have to tell you, people who claim they've never read Ellen White will take this text in Hebrews and say, yeah, but look, there's a sanctuary in heaven. Right. So somehow they're getting this doctrine twisted up in their mind without ever reading Ellen. But I bet they have clear words. I bet they listen to Doug Batchelor. Exactly. And I bet they listen to Sabbath school. And I bet they listen to their teachers in Adventist school and even their pastors. And it's really interesting to me that, you know, the argument was, well, God gave him a pattern. It was a pattern of what was happening in heaven. And he had to make it exactly as the pattern said. But Nikki, it didn't dawn on me for many years that God giving Moses a pattern to follow didn't mean it was being patterned after a literal physical building. It just meant he gave Moses like a blueprint Mm -hmm. and said, use this blueprint, construct sanctuary. And the sanctuary ended up having physical shadows. Hebrews 10.1 calls the Mm -hmm. law a shadow. Mm -hmm. Physical shadows of everything that is going on in the presence of God, God who is spirit, God who cannot be contained in a building made by hands, God who cannot even be contained by heaven and earth itself. God is over creation. He's not up there living in a physical building. He is not physical. So a pattern was for the sake of the humans who needed some sort of help to understand who God is and what he's doing. So in dealing with the idea of judgment, of course, Blanco has to keep everything consistent with the idea of the investigative judgment going on in heaven, atonement being made now. And then he ends up with everybody standing before the great white throne getting a you're saved, you're not saved, which is the way Ellen White set up the future. But notice, Nikki, in the process, he's had to change one of the most reassuring, powerful sentences in Scripture that I don't believe I ever really understood or even saw as an Adventist. Could you read, first of all, this passage from John 5, 24 in the ESV with all of its assurance and comfort? Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There goes the investigative judgment. Totally. He does not come into judgment. Nobody who believes in Jesus comes into judgment. 
And look at that tense, but has passed from death to life. Praise God. The minute we believe we have passed, and that means that we're there now. It doesn't mean that it's a maybe, and it doesn't mean we're on probation. How does Jack Blanco change this? Well, in the New Testament, a devotional paraphrase to stimulate faith and growth, he writes, those who listen to what I'm saying and believe that the Father has sent me will escape everlasting annihilation and instead receive eternal life because the seeds of death have been replaced by the seeds of life. The clear word he writes, those who listen to what I'm saying and believe that the father has sent me have eternal life. They will not be judged guilty because the seed of death in them has already been replaced by the seed of life. So if you have a seed of life, that is the same thing as having eternal life. Is that what he's trying to do here with the passage? He's trying to take away the fact that there is a certainty that we have at this point passed from death to life. He can't have that because Adventism doesn't allow eternal life literally to begin now. That means that death would keep us from experiencing being with the Lord. So he's taken this and is saying we have the seed of life, which from an Adventist perspective means one day by and by when Jesus comes back, he's going to give everybody who's saved eternal life. And we have that seed planted in us, but it isn't going to come to fruition until we prove that we're worthy, that we have overcome, and he comes and gives us life. So do you think that seed of death then is the idea they have that when Eve ate the apple, she began to die. I think so. So you can't have a dead spirit because you don't have a spirit. Right. So this is protecting a lot of different doctrines, isn't it? Yes. And in case a person who's never been Adventist is reading this and going, what does it mean? I'm not seeing all this. I'm telling you (laughs) that from an Adventist perspective, we know what this means. Adventists say we do not have an immaterial part of us that survives death. Adventists say we are not born physically alive, but literally spiritually dead. They say that when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not die that day. They just began to die. There is no dealing with an immaterial spirit. So this paraphrasing takes care of that as well. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know more about some of these doctrines that we're talking about, we have a lot of content on our podcast. You can go deep, check out our Hebrews passages, our Colossians, and some of our topical discussions on the nature of man. The last comparison that Steve uses in his chapter on the atonement and the clear word is taken from the end of the Bible, from the next to the last chapter, Revelation 21, 22. Without saying any more about it until we've read it, let's read this verse first from the ESV, the way the actual Bible says it, and then from the clear word for kids and the clear word and see what it is that Jack Blanco does to mess this up. Okay. So the English standard version, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. Okay. Let's just talk through that. He sees no what in the holy city? No temple. And why does he see no temple? Because the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple. So they are the temple. Remember when Jesus stood in front of the Pharisees and they were accusing him of his disciples breaking the Sabbath? Mm -hmm. And he said, one greater than the temple is here. Mm -hmm. He was meaning himself. Everything the temple symbolized was in Jesus, even when he was here incarnate. And now here at the end of the Bible, in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, there's no temple because 
Almighty God is the temple. (laughs) He is the temple. Everything the temple represented is in God and the Lamb. But how does Jack Blanco change that? So the easy English clear word in the clear word for kids reads, I didn't see the temple in the city. It really didn't need one because God and Jesus were there. The temple was located outside the city as a reminder of what God had done for his people. Then the clear word reads, I didn't see the temple in the New Jerusalem. Actually, there was no need of one since God and the Lamb were there. The temple I had seen was now outside the city as a memorial of what God had done for his people. So what has he inserted into the holy city, into the final eternal state? Well, there's going to be a temple outside of the city as a a memorial temple as a memorial of what God has done. There is nothing in scripture to indicate that. There's only Ellen White. The temple is an idol in Adventism. That whole sanctuary service, that whole heavenly temple is an idol. So Nikki, in heaven, in the eternal state, in the new earth, what is the memorial of what God has done? His scars. Yes. Jesus's glorified body will always have the scars. That's how he identified himself to Thomas when Thomas said, my Lord and my God. His glorified body carries the scars that he got by taking our sin and taking our punishment. We will have glorified bodies, but Jesus himself is the memorial, the eternal intercessor, the eternal high priest, the eternal first fruits from the dead. He is how we will never forget how we're there. There's no physical temple and it's blasphemous to insert one. Mm-hmm. That's to preserve the Ellen White physicalist version of the nature of man and the nature of God and the nature of atonement. If we don't understand what the Bible says and let it speak for itself, we worship an idol. And we don't understand who Jesus is. There's so much more evidence in the clear word for how Blanco distorts scripture to support Adventist theology. But this gives you a picture of how he works to guard and protect and uphold and pass down these heretical doctrines inside of Adventism. And as you're listening to this, if you have never understood that our Lord Jesus who is eternal, almighty God, I am Yahweh. He took a body so that he could take our imputed sin into himself and hang on the cross to shed his blood to pay for all of the sins of everyone who will ever trust him. And as he hung on the cross, he literally endured the wrath of God and felt himself separated from his father. He felt the separation our sin created between his human nature and God the Father. He experienced hell for us as he hung there between heaven and earth before he died and was buried. If you have never understood that he did that for you and trusted him, and that on the third day he rose from death because his sacrifice was sufficient for all your sins, past, present, and future, this is the time to trust him. And know that the things you've been taught in Adventism have been a counterfeit. They've been carefully worded. They've been beautifully crafted. But they are not what the Bible says. 
And we can't believe unto salvation if we're believing the wrong Jesus and an incomplete atonement. This is the time to trust the real Jesus who took your sin, who paid for it, and who rose from death and broke the curse into which you were born. Trust him today. And join us next week as we continue to explore the clear word. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.